Good morning, church. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you're a guest, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. If you're a member, know we love you. We've been praying for you. Um, and we are excited as to what God is doing in your life during this time of fasting and praying. This week, we'll be focusing on praying for our church, praying for our church. If you're not accustomed to praying for the church on a regular basis, I do want to encourage you uh, to continue to do this. This week, you will be praying for the church, praying for the different ministries of the church, the leaders of the church, praying for us to be united. And, and as a member of the church, listen, you're called to consistently pray for the church. Pray for the church. Pray that God will use his church. Amen. Um, I just want to share one announcement with you guys, just to let you know this, that um, on March 2nd, Foster the Love, it was on the announcement, we need volunteers. We're going to have about 25 um, children that will be here on, on uh, March 2nd, which is a Saturday from 2 p.m., I think 2 p.m. to whatever time, I can't remember exactly. Um, but you can actually sign up in the back. We really need help, so go ahead and sign up. And it's just a great way to serve people. Um, so Jody and the ladies, they have created this great opportunity for us to serve, so we definitely need you to come and serve in that way. Today's sermon is titled Contrasting Faith. Contrasting Faiths, right? Contrasting Faith. The Bible, the Bible often teaches issues of faith and virtue by using contrasts, right? The Bible often uses issues of faith and virtues by using contrasts. This is especially true with historical narratives. It is especially true with historical narratives. So what, what, what the Bible does in historical narrative, it sets up like different people before us and it tells us of their stories and then it shows us how God interacted with these people. In 1 Samuel, we've seen multiple contrasts. The first contrast we have is Hannah. Here is Hannah, a woman who's crying out to the Lord, a woman of great faith, right? She's contrasted with Panina, the second wife of Elkanah. She's also contrasted with her husband Elkanah, and she's also contrasted with Eli, just in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we see even a greater contrast of faith. We see Samuel, a young boy, serving and ministering God, right? So consistently we are told Samuel is ministering before the Lord, but he is contrasted with the two sons of Eli. They were supposed to be the priests, and yet they were sinners, tremendous sinners. They were consistently disobeying God. So God basically prescribed for a certain way to sacrifice animals, and the two sons of Eli took portions of the meat for themselves. And their debauchery even went even further. They slept with women that were actually serving in the house of the Lord. So we are given the contrast of the two faiths. Here is Samuel's faith serving the Lord and the sons of Eli not serving God. Well, it's not done. Here's another contrast in chapter 3. There's a contrast between Samuel and Eli. Eli is supposed to be the man of God. He's supposed to be the priest. And the word tells us that in those days, the word of God was rare. So here is Eli. God is not speaking to Eli. Why? Because of Eli's sin. But then it gives us a picture of where Eli was in the temple or in the house of the Lord. He is in a chamber 
away from the Ark of the Covenant, but where is Samuel? Samuel is right next to the Ark of the Covenant. The author wants you to see that proximity to the Ark of the Covenant shows the spirituality of those two men. So here is Eli, far away from the Ark of the Covenant. Here is Samuel, close to the Ark of the Covenant. Do not take this as an application for you to sleep with your Bible, sleep, have your Bible right next to you and say, well, I am with God. That's not the point here. What the author wants you to understand is simply the hearts of those two men. And then God speaks to Samuel and he continues to speak to Samuel. We see the contrast of faith. But the greatest contrast in the book of Samuel is between Saul and David. So much so, this is a powerful contrast that it takes the remainder of the book. It is filled with the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel. So all we're going to get now is a contrast between Saul and David. Over and over again, Saul and David. Here is Saul's lack of faith, but here is David's faith. Here is Saul's attitude toward God. Saul is angry. Saul has this evil spirit, so-called. Saul does not love. But here is David who is patient and kind and all of the other things that accompanies true, genuine faith, right? So the Bible teaches us about these contrasts. And we have probably all have heard this particular chapter. This is by far one of the most popular chapters in the Bible, a classic tale having the ingredients of drama, excitement, anticipation, and the satisfaction that the villain will fall to the hero. I mean, this is an amazing story, and people say the Bible is boring. Really, if you read Scripture, you read this, if you read this, you could see the excitement altogether. And what people have done with this particular passage of Scripture is that they're really just Focus on this small guy, this little guy who defeats this giant. And, and, and this particular phrase or sentiment is we can even find it in sports, in business, and in politics. The small guy defeats the big guy, right? And a lot of times when we come to this text, that's the first application we want from this text. But friends, come in closer. There is a primary and greater application here for us to see. Don't just look at it as ways for us to grow in our faith. Yes, that's the implication, but the greatest application of this text is to show us that there is a greater David and that there is a greater Goliath. The greater David is Jesus. The greater Goliath is sin and death, and Jesus has defeated death on our behalf. So when you, when you read the story, don't, don't be like some preachers who will title their sermons uh, Facing Giants in Your Life, or, or once, one preacher who titled his sermon The Five Stones of David. And in The Five Stones of David, this is what he mentions. He says they were obedience, prayer, fellowship, worship, and witnessing. Like, where do you get that from? As a matter of fact, David had, yeah, he picked up, Five stones, but it was only one stone that killed Goliath. But this is a problem sometimes. We, we want the wrong application. So I, I want to help you understand to focus on right application here. I love what Alistair Begg mentions here. He says, the message of the story of David and Goliath is not 
that we are called to be like David, but rather that we have in Jesus a David, a king who triumphs in the valley of battle. This is what we must see here. Now, yeah, we can learn from David's faith, but the greater application is Jesus defeating death on our behalf. So with that said, this morning I want us to observe two points, two simple points from the sermon. Point number one is Saul's lack of faith. So let's learn from Saul's lack of faith. We see this in verses 1 through 11. And two, David's faith. David's faith. We see this in verses 12 through 30. Join me as I pray for us. Father, we are in desperate need of your help. We need you to move mightily in our hearts. As we learn from your son, you are always at work. And you are always inviting us to join you at work. So God, I pray that we are sensitive to the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray that we won't be distracted by the mockery of this world, the taunting of this world that causes us to be gripped with fear. I pray that we can be biblical and theological, that we are focused on God, so that when God speaks, we know God is speaking. And when the enemy speaks, we know how to act. Help us see a greater David in this text. Help us glorify your son and be thankful for your son because he died on the cross for us. He killed the greater uh, Goliath. He defeated the, the greater Goliath. And we thank Jesus for that. So let us rest in Jesus and be found in Jesus. In your mighty and precious name, we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. God's people said, amen, amen. The first point here is Saul's lack of faith. I love what the Apostle Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, walk by faith and not by sight. The author of Hebrews writes, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And what we see here from both scriptures is this contrast between truth and perception. What we believe is true versus what we perceive is true. And what scripture calls us to understand is what we believe is true. What we believe is true in God. Not, not what we can see in the world, but what does the Bible tell you about God and the things of God? The issue is, I think a lot of times we have a wrong definition of faith. Some people believe that faith is, is having faith. You can have faith without proof, and that's what faith is. That, that's what it is. You, you, you don't have to have proof. You don't have to have any evidence. You don't have to see, you know, have to believe in anything. Just, just say, I believe. So, so one of the problems I have is uh, family members, when, when they get bad reports from the doctor, they will say, whatever the doctor said to them, whether they had cancer or they have an illness, they will say on a consistent basis, I don't have that. The doctor is wrong. I believe that's not true. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the wrong way to look at it. There's facts be before you. It says that you have cancer. It is what it is. Nevertheless, this is what faith is. Faith is trusting in God. 
even with a bad report. I'm not called to ignore a bad report. No, I'm called to see it for what it is and trust God to overcome it. And this is a problem we have with a lot of Christians sometimes is that they ignore what true biblical faith is. Faith is not without proof or without evidence. No, it's with these things. And we can think deeply about that. No wonder skeptics look at the Christian life and say we are fools because of stuff like that. We never want to engage our minds. So faith is completely trusting in God even in the midst of difficulties. And one of the beautiful things about faith is that it's built the more and more that God is faithful to us. So, so the more and more I'm walking with the Lord, the, the more and more God shows himself to me, it is food to my faith. This is why in Scripture they're always building monuments. Ebenezer, the Lord has helped. And we consistently need to build monuments, spiritual monuments, to say to ourselves, this is how God answered. This is how God has been faithful to me. So I can always go back to that and make much of God. But here's the issue with Saul. Although God has revealed himself over and over and over to Saul, there are no monuments being built. There's a lack of faith, and I'll go even as far to say to you that there is no faith in Saul. I want to show you two reasons why Saul lacked faith in this narrative. One, he responded with fear at what he saw. He responded with fear from what he saw. What did Paul, Saul see? To Saul... And we, we understand in the chapters above that he fought against the Philistines. And here is his son, Jonathan, with great boldness and went and fought against the Philistines. Even when, even when Saul and the Israelites were hiding in caves and rocks. And here is Jonathan with great boldness with his armor bearer and went and fought against the Philistines. That in itself we learn because of Jonathan's faith that stimulated great faith among the people, they came out of their caves and went against the Philistines, chased the Philistines away. Now the Philistines are back, and they are angry. They're 15 miles away from Bethlehem. They're actually in Judah at this moment, and they are ready to fight and destroy God's people. We're not given the amount of people, but I could imagine hundreds and perhaps hundreds and thousands of people are against God's people here. That brought great fear in the life of Saul. But I want you to observe with me. I want you to see with me. This fear debilitated Saul. And this is what happens for us. Fear when we are gripped by fear, it debilitates us. And the fear of men cannot coexist with faith. Do you get it? When, when we fear so much, it cannot coexist with faith. One must flee. One must stay. And in this situation, we notice that Saul is greatly afraid. But this is a disposition of Saul throughout the narrative. Do you remember the first time when God called Saul? In chapter 10, when Saul was supposed to be anointed, where was Saul? 
he's hiding among the baggage. <laughs> Saul is more fearful of men than he is of God. And again, we have this example in chapter 13. When Saul fought against the Philistines and the Philistines are coming against him and Saul was moved with great fear. As a matter of fact, in verse 7 of chapter 13, it said, Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. Why are the people trembling? Because the leader is trembling. Why is Saul trembling? Because he's fearful of men. So friends, come in closer and don't miss this. This is important for you to understand this. The only solution to fear is fear. Well, Kevin, that makes no sense at all. Let me explain myself. I want to say it this way. The only solution to fear or the fear of man is to fear God. Does that make sense? The only way we can dispel this kind of fear in our life is to fear God more than we fear men more than we fear situations. This is exactly what Samuel said to the people before he left. Notice what he mentions in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 through 25. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you do wickedly, so shall be swept away both you and your king. The only solution to the fear of men is the fear of God. That we must fear God. And this is exactly what was missing in the life of Saul. He was gripped by fear. He was gripped by what he saw. But not only did he see the armies of the Philistines, he also saw the champion of the Philistines. And my goodness, the description of Goliath is very intimidating, right? Let me break this down for you. First, it describes his height. Goliath's height is not without comparison. He was nine feet, six inches tall. And, and some people have doubted the fact that the Bible can even say something like this. And they're like, the Bible is completely wrong to even believe that someone can be that tall. But if we understand just in the 1940s, right, the Guinness Book of War record reports in the 1940s of an Illinois man by the name of Robert Woodlow. He was verified to be 8 feet 11 inches tall, a mere 7 inches shorter than Goliath. This is not far-fetched. We know that the Bible talks about people who being extremely tall, and Goliath is the tallest one. And right now in our world today, the tallest man in our world is 8 feet 5 inches. So why would people turn to this and say, well, the Bible is wrong when we have people who are extremely tall in our culture today? But here it gives us the height of Goliath. He is extremely tall man. In the book of Numbers, if you remember the 10 spies who went with the bad report and two who came back with the good report, right? What did they see? They saw the stature of the people, and that caused them to be extremely fearful. For some reason, the Bible talks about great power, or the way people perceive great power, is with height. 
If you're extremely, extremely tall, then people would respect you or, or you probably would be in the army. And here we have the tallest of them all. If you remember very carefully, when Saul was chosen to be king, what exactly was his description? He was taller than everyone in Israel. That's what the people would look at Saul to be, not his heart, but his appearance. Second, there's a description of his armor. Not only was his height imposing, but his armor was intimidating. I mean, his helmet of bronze on his head, and, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and weight of the coat was about 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his leg. The, the, the mail coat weighed 5,000 shekels, which is 126 pounds. This was a massive man. I don't know about you. If you ever try to bench press, and maybe like you have those dumbbells and you're trying to do it, uh, maybe most of you, the most you can do is maybe 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds. But imagine 60 pounds on each, and you're just bench pressing that. Here's Goliath. But his male coat is, 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 is just 126 pounds. This man is walking around every day with 126 pounds like it's nothing. This is what the Bible wants to describe him as. And the Bible wants you to see this massive figure, this massive person. Talks about his shield. His shield was so large that it took one man to walk around with Goliath carrying his shield around. This is a massive man. What else do we have here? Third, a description of his weaponry. He had a javelin of bronze and swung between his shoulder. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's, a weaver's beam that weighed 600 shekels of iron, which basically means it was 15 pounds, right? Fourth, the description of his occupation. Oh, don't miss this. We, we are given a description of his height, a description of his armor, a description of his weaponry, and now a description of his occupation. This was not just a massive guy who was just going to get to go fight against someone, right? So we will say in basketball, if someone is extremely tall, we'll just get them and say, come play basketball because you're extremely tall. You don't have to be skillful, right? And we might think the same thing of Goliath because he's extremely tall and big. You know, we just have him fighting against people. But no, he was a champion, which basically means he was very skillful. Probably was trained from the time he was young to now. He fought many battles. The word literally means man between the two. This is what it means for champion, the man, oh, a man between the two. He was trained, equipped to step forth between competing armies and challenge an opponent to a single combat. This is what he would do. I don't know if you remember the movie Troy. I don't know if you remember that movie, right, with uh, Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt was kind of like Goliath without the size. They would get... Brad Pitt to go and fight against the different armies, just one person. And when he defeated that particular person, then that particular army would submit to the other army. This is the example of it here. 
This is exactly what Saul is seeing with his own eyes. The description of Goliath is so intimidating. And he is gripped by fear. But not only what he saw. Coming closer, friends, you need to get this. You need to get this. It's not only what he saw, but even more damaging, what he heard. What Saul heard from Goliath. And we see it in verses 8 through 10. Look in your own Bibles and see for yourself, chapter 17, verses 8 through 10. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and he kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight against or fight together. This is the words of Goliath. And when he heard the words of Goliath, not just Saul, but the entire nation, the entire people of the Israelite people were greatly afraid. They were gripped with fear. Goliath represents for us spiritual opposition to God and his people, especially as manifested by Satan and demonic forces. A.W. Pink, coming closer, don't miss this. A.W. Pink, this is what he wrote. He said, Goliath pictures to us the great enemy of God and men, the devil, seeking to terrify and bring into captivity those who bear the name of the Lord. And friends, the taunt and the mockery of Goliath is assailing in our churches today. It is echoing in our churches today. The world is saying exactly the same thing that Goliath is saying, and we are tolerating such mockery. And we sometimes can be intimidated like Saul instead of motivated like David. What do you mean, Kevin? What taunts are a mockery is the world saying today? Well, they're saying to you and they're saying to us, why do we believe the Bible? The Bible is attacked more in our time than it's ever been attacked before. What they're saying is the Bible is just written by men. And because men are flawed, the Bible is flawed. So why would you even listen to the Bible? Why would you listen to the Bible? And they're consistently attacking us and telling us, don't read the Bible. Consistently mocking you. What we need to do is remind them that the Bible was written by God. Yes, God used flawed men, but the Spirit of God moved mightily upon men to write Holy Scripture. This is exactly what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. The Spirit of God moved upon man to write holy scripture. The Bible is not flawed because men are flawed. God used men to write holy scripture. God influenced. So the Bible is inspired. 
They mock us today by saying to, by, by saying to us and preaching to us of their perverted love. They would say to you that God is a loving God, but they take away the wrath of God and the justice of God. So they look at you and they say to you, are you not a Christian? Are you not a Christian? So when you stand against certain habits and certain sin, they begin to condemn you by saying to you, you don't know the love of God. But friends, come in. This is a perverted view of the love of God. Yes, God is loving, but yes, God is a just God and a wrathful God. That's the gospel that we preach. And when they come to you with such mockery, we must stand on the word of God. They come to you by condemning you and saying to you that you need to believe in same-sex marriage and transgenderism and gender identity. And they say to you, if you don't believe these things, then you're not a loving person. That's the mockery of Goliath that is happening today. But we need to remind them that the Bible says that marriage is between a man and and the Bible tells us who a man is and who a woman is. Friends, I need you to understand that the mockery of Goliath is happening today. And like Saul coward, Christians are cowering. We must stand firm on Scripture and preach the Word of God and rely upon the Word of God. But not just Saul's lack of faith. What I love about this is David's faith. What does me the second point? David's faith. We see this in verses 12 through 30. Goliath speaks, right? And we see in verse 11, he speaks, and there is great dismay among Saul and the people of Israel. They are greatly afraid. So God, are you just going to end the story there? No, he is not. So God sends David, by God's sovereignty and God's provision, that God allowed this to happen, that David had to hear what was going on. And this is what we have is this beautiful story. So we see the opposite in the life of David. There's no lack of faith in the life of David. There is great faith in the life of David. Instead of fear, there is faith. Now watch this. David saw and heard the same thing that Saul saw and heard. But he reacted differently. Why? Because of saving faith, my friends. We can have two people in the same room listening to the same message, perhaps going through the same thing, and one respond positively and the other one respond negatively. Why? Because of saving faith. The question is, do you have saving faith? Do you have biblical faith? And here we have it that David has biblical faith. Come in closer. And I don't want you to miss this. Do you have faith in God? Do you? Do you fear God more than you fear men? There are two things I want you to see from David's faith here that we can learn. One is... David's situation. Faith is built in his life through his situation. This is quite interesting that the author 
chose to go back and explain David's history. If you notice in verse, in chapter 16, he had already mentioned to us that Samuel went to uh, Jesse's house and, and uh, David's brothers, three brothers were called up and every single one of them were called up. And then David was the younger one and David now is, uh, is with Samuel and Samuel anoints him. The Lord said, yes, this is my servant, anoint him, right? And what we have here is that the author of the first Samuel is going back into the history of David. Why is it that he's telling us about Jesse and the three brothers of David? The whole point here, friends, don't miss this, is to show you that there is a contrast between David and Goliath. David is a young boy, perhaps small. And here is Goliath with all of these accolades, his height, his armor, his weaponry, and his occupation. As a matter of fact, Goliath is a great champion. And what about David? A shepherd boy. You get it. This is the whole point here, that the author wants you to see the contrast between David and Goliath. It is so amazing how difficult this is, like, why would they even send this young boy? Why would this young boy fight against Goliath? Even Goliath made fun of David and Israel. If you notice in verse 42 and 43 of chapter 17, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David and his gods. A shepherd boy before a champion? My friends, this is exactly what God told to Samuel. Man, look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What did God see in this David? Saving faith. Saving faith produces great character, right? That's what James says. That's what Jesus says. Out of the abundance of your heart, your, your mouth speaks. And, and we, we have an idea of David's character in chapter 16. He's a man of valor, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. And here's the most important thing about David. God was with him. This is how they describe David in chapter 16. David goes, his dad says, hey, David, I want you to go see your three brothers. They're enlisted in the military. And in this particular time, the family of those enlisted were called to provide for them. But it wasn't the king. The king wasn't able to do it then. So the family, if you enlist in the military, your families had to provide all the things that you needed. And Jesse is old, and Jesse is saying to David, hey, I want you to leave the flock, and I want you to go and bring goods for your brothers. David then gets a keeper to watch over his flock, and David goes. And upon arrival, David, as a young boy, is seeing all of this commotion. And the closer he gets, he sees perhaps Goliath, and he sees the army, and he sees the people of God intimidated. And then David heard something. He heard the words of Goliath. It changed everything. Friends, I, I need you to see this with me. 
David's experience here reminds us that we do not know what challenges may await us on any given day. David wasn't even thinking that he was going to fight a giant. He woke up in the morning thinking, I'm going to save or to help my flock, right? To feed my flock. And all of a sudden, at the end of the day, David is fighting against a giant. This is the sovereignty and providence of God. And I love what one commentator mentions here. Come in closer and pay close attention to this. He comments here and he helps us see. He says, should we not pray more, really, more earnestly if we did realize these responsibilities or these possibilities? Is it not a good habit as you kneel each morning to think? For ought I know, this may be the most important day of my life. The opportunity may be given me of doing a great service in the cause of truth and righteousness, or the temptation may assail me to deny my Lord and ruin my soul. O oh God, be not far from me this day. Prepare me for all that thou prepares me for. What, what a great quote here. This is someone who trusts in the sovereignty of God. Like today might be one of the greatest trials in your life when you leave this church. It might be one of the great blessings in your life when you leave this church. At the end of the day, you cannot control that. But the person who is controlling it is God. And David trusted in God. He trusted in God. May God use your situation and your circumstances to draw you closer and closer to Him. So when you face difficulties, you ask God, what are you teaching me through all of this? I love what George Mueller, the great man of faith, this is what he mentions. He once said, God delights to increase the faith of His children. We ought instead of wanting no trial before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hands as a means. I say, and I say deliberately, trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. Oh, friends, let us see this. And let us turn to God even more. Let us thank God for what he's doing in our lives. But not only David's situation, but it's what David heard that activated his faith even more. What did David hear? David heard the mockery of Goliath. Now you must understand this. In verse 16, it mentioned that Goliath would do this every single day for 40 days. There's this massive, massive man, right? This, this fortress on two wheels. And he is going before the people every single day dressed in his armory, dressed with, with we having his, his, his shield next to him and, and his helmet. And he is mocking the people for 40 days. Now, 40 days of 40, the number 40 is very significant in Scripture. It shows a time of a sense of trial, 
and going through difficulties, like the people of God, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus fasted for 40 days. In this situation, we have 40 days of the people enduring mockery. And at that very moment, here is David stepping forth, and he's about to do something amazing through the power of God. Friends, I love what one commentator mentions here. When you think about the mockery of Goliath, he paraphrased it. And I want you to pay close attention to this. Coming closer. And he says, this is probably what Goliath said, or what David heard, most importantly. Am I not a pagan? God hating Philistine? Then why won't any of your men of the living God fight me? You must not really believe in him at all. In fact, you must believe that a nine-foot warrior is actually stronger than your living God when it comes to a real battle. I think, I think that's probably what David heard. <laughs> that's exactly what he heard. How do you know this, Kevin? Notice his response. In verse 26, And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And here it goes. Are you listening? Listen to this. Paul, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? There is great faith here. Great faith. An American missionary in Africa wanted to translate the English word faith into the dialect of the people. They was having a very difficult time trying to find the right word, the right phrase. So he went to a sage who was also a Christian and asked, can you help me? And the person said, well, give, me, give me a few days to think about it. And he came back and he says, does it not mean to hear with the heart? He, he defines faith as hearing with the heart. And this is exactly what David does here. He, he is listening to the mockery of Goliath, and he's hearing how Goliath is mocking God and the armies of the living God. He heard with his heart. I want you to observe this. But David's example here teaches us. When David spoke the way he spoke, don't miss this. And this is the application for us here. Don't miss this. One, that the affairs of life, the affairs of life are essentially theological. The affairs of life are essentially theological. Everything about you, if you're a Christian this morning, the affairs of life is theological. Who you marry, the decisions you make, the places you go, the things you're involved in. If you're a Christian, every affair of life is theological. It is spiritual. We have become spiritual beings. And we belong to God. So we think about things theologically. And what happens a lot of times for Christians is they're saying, you know what, man? I just want to take off my Christianity and put it aside. And I just want to have fun without thinking too much about the problems of this world. Friends, that's not how we are to act. You belong to God. You're slaves of God. You're children of God. So we involve God in everything that we do. The affairs of life is theological. 
Don't say I'm a Christian at church and when I go to work, I act completely different. No, friends. If we shrink from doing, I want you to get this, please, please get this. Please get this. Coming closer, get this. If we shrink from doing difficult things for God, we show that we think him weak, distant, and indifferent. You are his. We see great faith in David because David belongs to God. He was very theological. Have you not read the Psalms? Who in the Old Testament knew more about God than David? He was a man who was constantly in the Word of God. And everything he did, he wanted to be theological. He wasn't perfect by any means possible. But he understood the affairs of life was theological. It was spiritual. And secondly, David shows us how important it is for Christians to know the truth about God. Don't, don't miss this. Because I think this is a problem we have in so many churches. There's a lot of saying where people get on the pulpit and they say to you, it's not about theology. Don't worry about theology. Theology really doesn't matter. Theology is not relevant to this life. And they're telling people this on a consistent basis. And friends, listen, coming closer. That is a problem. David here is standing on the word of God. How does David know that this person is an uncircumcised Philistine? How does David know that he is blaspheming or defying the living God? Because of the truth in God's word. Christians are being told often from the pulpit that theology is not important. It lacks relevance for life. And more now than ever, we have Christians in a church who do not know the Bible. They do not. They don't read it. They don't study it. They don't memorize it. They don't meditate on it. They just do not know the scriptures. And you have conversation with them, and you ask them simple questions, and they have no clue. No wonder the mockery of Goliath is going on even more and more and more in our time. What we learn from David here with his great statement is that the affairs of life are essentially theological. And second, David teaches us that Christians, we ought to know the truth about God and his word. Do you know God? So when the mockery of Goliath is going around, that you can notify it and fight against it because you know God. You know God. Would you turn to Jesus? Because what we have here is a greater David, and his name is Jesus Christ. We look to the New Testament, and we understand how Jesus died on the cross for our sins and defeated death for us. And gave us salvation based on his blood and on his finishing work. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you have saving faith? I think what happens a lot of times in our Christian, our Christian bubble or Christianity is that we have so many people who do not have necessarily saving faith. They have an understanding of scripture. They want a sense of spirituality but there's not saving faith where they have repented of their sins and they have placed a faith in Jesus Christ and that they are living for Jesus. 
This is a faith that David had. And this is the faith that Jesus has secured for us if we will turn away from our sins and turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Do you trust Jesus? This week we are praying for lost family members and lost friends. And we want to continue to pray for the lost around us and pray that God would save people, save our children, save our spouse, save our neighbors, save people. Because we understand what saving faith really does. It transforms the life of people. And it gives them a great destiny in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Will you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word. We pray, Father, as we notice the faith of David, there are some great applications here. But the greatest application is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. The greater giant is not Goliath, it is sin and death. And we thank you for that, O oh Lord. Let us learn from David's example and let us flee from Saul's bad example. You're moving in our lives and we want to trust in you. In your mighty and precious name, amen, amen.